Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live uh, is an obscure writer who is just has his... Is probably become one of the most well-known writers since uh, Agatha Christie in his ah. genre, I would say. Would you agree? Uh, perhaps I don't know. It's uh, and he is uh, the writer, the author of uh, several series, including the number one ladies' detective agency, oh. a chronicle of life in traditional Botswana and the lovely Precious, the uh, Two and a Half Pillars of Wisdom, the Sunday Philosophy Club series, the. Uh, yes. The Two and a Half Pillars of Wisdom, uh, the Sunday, uh, the 44 Scotland Street series, Corduroy Mansions, and a whole series of children's books, 30 of them, with a, with a, with a young chap named Akimbo. <laughs> and, and he plays the bassoon. And he plays the bassoon. Founded, uh, he was born in uh, Rhodesia, now uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, he, uh, he has also been instrumental in getting the economy of Botswana going single-handed. <laughs> Uh, he has uh, written uh, the only legal guidebook to law in Botswana, and for the first, uh, uh, and, and is uh, and produced recently. Uh, wrote the libretto for an opera uh, with a with a cast of baboons, in uh, if, of Macbeth. I, I can't imagine this at the moment, and you can perhaps explain it. And he also has been a, a professor of medicine, bioethics, medical law, uh, and he's a man of uh, he's a Renaissance man. Right. And, and I think he illustrates the connection, the philosophical connection with the Age of Enlightenment between Edinburgh and Paris, which wow. exists to this day. Wow. Will you please welcome Alexander McCall Smith to West Coast Live. How do you do? Thank you very much. Thank you. How does he? Look very elegant in your kilt today. <laughs> yes, it's an unusual one, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> It's, a, it's that special design allowing... Uh, anyway, so well, welcome uh, to San Francisco. I know you come here uh, from time to time in the, the West Coast. What is the ratio of your sort of touring around and being celebrity author to writing? Well, it's, it's one of the difficulties when one becomes a, a full-time writer of finding the time to, to write at all. So uh, I have to battle for my, my writing time, and, and often I have to write uh, while I'm on tour. So I'm writing on this, on this tour. Uh, if you notice me uh, scribbling away while we're talking. <laughs> uh, you can write if you want. I mean, there are people in the audience texting, I've noticed. You know. <laughs> yes, uh, no, I, I, I do have to, um, I have to keep these things going, but, but particularly uh, since I write uh, serial novel, novels. Um, and actually, I, I blame San Francisco for, for my, my plight there in that I started to write these serial novels after I had been at a party at... Uh, Amy Tan's house, where I met Armistead Mopan. And uh, uh, he has written serial novels, as you know, set in these parts. And it was a conversation with him which got me writing Scotland Street. And uh, I've written uh, six volumes since then. In fact, I, I said to, to Armistead that uh, uh, really, since he was responsible for, the, for that, uh, he, he would need to help me out with the, with the plot if I got into, <laughs> uh, in, into any difficulties. So, um, yes, yeah, so I have to do it while I'm, I'm traveling. So you have uh, these siblings. I don't know. Are they sisters? Are they brother? Are they mixed uh, genders of, of these books? And how do you keep? And do you have a favorite? I mean, clearly, I'm sure readers have favorites. But is is there one that's really kind of dad's favorite? 
Well, it's it's difficult in a sense. That asking that question, what is your favourite character in particular? Well, I didn't ask that. Uh, just no. series. No, well, I just wondered whether you were going to ask that question. No, no, that wasn't on my list. <laughs> well, then it's, it's. But if you want to answer that way, uh, uh, well, had you asked me. Uh, <laughs> Had you asked me who my favorite character was, I would find that difficult because that would be exactly uh, like asking a, a parent who their favorite uh, a child is. So uh, I, I don't really like to distinguish between the, uh, between the series. It's, um, it's sometimes um, uh, difficult to, to, to keep them apart. I think that do, doing uh, uh, as many series as uh, I do uh, can, can be difficult. And I have to remind myself where I am at a particular point when I sit down to write, which book I'm writing, which world I'm going into and I have do, do you ever get stuck like I, I've got to get out of Botswana. How do I get back to Pimlico? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I think that I've been uh, particularly lucky in that I haven't suffered from uh, that uh, condition that people uh, talk about uh, uh, with such uh, fear, that certainly authors talk about with such fear, which is writer's block. And I, I must say that I, I have been fortunate in, in not suffering from that. So I tend not to get, uh, not to get stuck. Um, sometimes uh, I, I, I find that um, the, that I, I can drift a little bit if I'm in, in one world, I can drift slightly into the other. And, and that happened once with one of my Mara Motswe books uh, when I sent the manuscript off to my um, editor in New York. And he said, look at page whatever it was, 80, and uh, Precious from Motswe starting to talk like Isabel Dalhousie. And, uh, <laughs> and indeed he was right, and I'd slipped into... Uh, so we remedied that. What was, the, what was the characteristic that he noticed? Well, she started to talk about uh, rather obscure issues of philosophy, and she started <laughs> to talk about moral obligation and Kantian theories. Of, and uh, those uh, are things that Mara Matsui would, would not particularly talk about. Now, she, she would understand all that, but she would understand that uh, with, without the apparatus of this philosophical language, because she knows what's right, she understands the world, and she often gets things uh, right when uh, Isabel Dalhousie, who's another of my heroines, who's a professional philosopher, gets them quite wrong. The, um, your, your, uh, your, your novel set in, in uh, Botswana brought to the fore uh, a land that I had not heard referred to since an Evelyn Waugh novel in which, uh, I think it was Scoop, in which his journalist had gone off and he was suffering from something called Botswana tummy. You know? <laughs> well, I think it was, he, he used the, the, um, the name that the country had before Botswana because when Waugh wrote, Botswana didn't exist. This isn't a criticism of your your recollection, uh, but you uh, actually have got it wrong. I think it was uh, um, uh, Tommy. Of course. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if an editor had changed that in the book. Yes, it, it, it's possible that's been changed. If you've read a recent uh, edition of Scoop, uh, maybe they, they, they felt that uh, the, there might be some readers who might not know uh, that uh, Bertrand Land was uh, yeah. <laughs> here. What, what, what piqued your interest in, in, uh, in ethics and, and philosophical behavior and, and moral quandaries? I mean, it shows up in, in all of your series in one form or another, and yet professionally that was uh, your mainstay for, for many years, dealing with you know, you know, very serious issues in, in the world. 
Well, I, I found those ex extremely interesting, and I, I, I reached that, I suppose, through medical law. I was professor of medical law at uh, Edinburgh University. And uh, increasingly, uh, uh, these issues, these bioethical issues, issues, uh, issues of the, uh, the, the, the moral implications of progress in medicine and science in general uh, came up. And uh, I found that the more you looked at those, the more interesting they, they became. So I, I became professionally involved in those. I served for um, some years with uh, UNESCO, with the International Bioethics Commission. And, and I, I found these, these uh, issues absolutely um, fascinating. And so they have, a, in, in, in a way, they have affected my, my writing in that uh, I went from those into more, more general issues of, of um, uh, moral philosophy. And uh, that, I think, is why I, I, I invented Isabel Dalhousie as, as a professional moral philosopher, although I'm interested in those issues generally. And I think most of us are, actually. We're interested in these very straightforward issues of how we are to lead our lives, how we are to treat our friends, how we are to treat our enemies uh, more, more particularly. And uh, th these, I think, uh, are, are fascinating. They're the stuff of fiction. And you and you make use of different cultures to sort of examine these these questions. In part, I think that uh, some of the questions uh, that you must have encountered in your bioethics work, uh, in part, are in some ways uh, unresolvable. Yes, I, I think that's right. I think that uh, a number of these uh, issues. Uh, really, after one's discussed them and identified what the uh, what the problems are, you you get you get to a fairly stark choice, and you get to disagreement really, uh, and uh, where where somebody says A and another person says B, and and I think that poses really uh, very serious issues for um, for for society as to um, what sort of uh, tolerance or what level of tolerance of of differences of opinion uh, one should should have. Um, for example, I mean, an issue, it's not a, really a, so much a, a bioethical issue, but there was an issue uh, in, the, in the UK some, uh, some years back about um, fox hunting. And uh, there were a lot of people who, who found the whole um, question of, of, of fox hunting, the whole idea of actually chasing a fox on, on horses with dogs, uh, very unattractive. Uh, and um, and then other people felt that this is what, how they wanted to spend their weekends, and uh, uh, the issue really became very very stark. And I, I think that that raised a, an issue of whether in a liberal society you can, on that sort of issue, reach some sort of compromise. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's it's very very difficult. What what do you think the compromise could be? Well, release the fox, not chase. Have the fox chase the horse one week, and uh, you know. yes, <laughs> yes, there are all sorts of compromises one could uh, come up with. All the yes, uh, but um, I think uh, there there was a bit of a compromise reached, and, and it's it, it really is it's it's a rather ridiculous compromise. Is that they can get on their horses and they can dress up in 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 hunting pink, and they can have the dogs and 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 go to the pub and drink stirrup cups and all of that. But then you've actually got to have uh, and then you can get the dogs chasing a, a, a fox, but um, you're, the dogs aren't allowed to kill the, kill the fox. So they have a have a, a chap with a rifle, and in a sense, uh, that uh, it, it seems to me to be uh, r r ridiculous. And and in fact, also you mean the, the fox will be killed by the rifle, or a dog if it goes after the fox will be killed by a rifle? No, no, they're 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 uh, they're, they're they're only allowed to uh, to, to to kill uh, foxes with. Uh, uh, with rifles, that's that's certainly the position in in Scotland, where where 
where I, I, I live. And of course, that means uh, that uh, there are those who say, well, the fo fox actually, if you're killing foxes with rifles, uh, you're, you're likely to injure injure a number who then go off. So it could, in, in a way, be, be, be crueler. But the, the reason why I quote that example is that I think that it, it brings up this issue where you've got two irreconcilable per positions in, 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 in society and whether the, that, that might be a case where you, you're just, again, have to agree to, to, to differ rather than stopping somebody doing something. You may, in those cases, not that I'm necessarily su suggesting that in, in this case, but you may say, well, okay, you can do it, but we don't like it. The uh, the characters uh, that you that you have created uh, sometimes have resources, financial resources. They've inherited some money. They've inherited something. They've been given a legacy that allows them to operate in 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 the world in an independent way. In in many ways, it's it's classic in children's books where you know the parents aren't around and the child is able to operate independently. That idea of being able to operate independently and uh, uh, sort of irrespective of of other pressures seems integral to some of your, your books. Yes, well, I, I suppose that's a certain wish fulfillment in that probably all of us, uh, all of us actually uh, probably dream of that for, from time to time in our lives, that uh, somebody's going to come along and say, you're never going to have to work again. Um, and uh, here is, uh, uh, here is the, the means to, to, to do it. I suppose it's a rather childish wish, isn't it? The, the idea that you'll find buried treasure. As a child, you think you might find buried treasure. I suppose it's the same sort of thing that motivates these people with their metal detectors going around looking for, looking for treasure. Or who start IPOs or get involved in financial shenanigans. Or it's hedge funds. So the hedge funds is another way of doing it. Yes. But I, I, so I suppose it's, it's a pretty basic... Uh, basic fantasy that we're freed of the requirement of work, that we're freed of, we're freed of all, the, all the worries uh, that um, are attendant upon having to earn money and pay for things. So yes, maybe when I create these characters who are left a legacy, Mara Matsui was left a number of cattle, and Isabel Dalhousie was, was left a, a number of shares. Yes, I suppose that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm freeing them up to lead a life in which they can be themselves. And it's also a, a life of the mind in a way. And, uh, and it, it creates uh, interesting complications. It allows them to investigate the world and uh, to draw. And it's a wonderful sort of writer's structural technique too. Yes, that's right. And, and, and that, I suppose, also is why I chose to make Mara Matsui a, a detective. She's not, she doesn't concern herself with crime. Uh, she deals with problems in people's, people's lives. And I think that the device of the detective agency is uh, actually really a terrifically useful device because all sorts of people can come in the door. And uh, that gives you a, a way of describing um, all aspects of a, of a society and all sorts of um, psychological issues can, 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 can be raised. Um, although, interestingly enough, when I first wrote the short story about Mara Matsui, which was the basis of the first book, when I sat down and wrote about her, I didn't actually necessarily think I was going to make her a detective when her father suggests to her on his deathbed that she should start a, a little business. Uh, I could have actually had a totally different business, such as dry cleaning, uh, which uh, <laughs> uh, I think would have, been, would have been interesting because I think interesting things happen uh, in the world of dry cleaning. But <laughs> look, look what came in this shirt pocket here. Yes. Well, that's right. That's right. But it, it's interesting. The the dry cleaning novel uh, isn't really terribly popular. It somehow hasn't got uh, established. 
Well, with your name attached to it, and I, you know, I mean, you've got something called Corduroy Mansions. I mean, you're partway there. I mean, Corduroy Mansions, yes. That, that was a suggestion of um, my editor in London who said that when he was, uh, when he was a, a, a young man, he, he lived in a, in a block of flats in, in London that his girlfriend of the time thought was very fuddy-duddy and really old-fashioned and called it sarcastically Corduroy Mansions. And he told me the story, and I said, well, what a wonderful title for a, for a book. It's a, corduroy is comfortable, actually. I, as I speak, I realize that I'm wearing my new corduroy jacket. I didn't, uh, uh, there, there, there's no design in that, uh, as is apparent. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, corduroy is a, a comfortable sort of fabric. In, uh, uh, corduroy is reassuring. Um, tweed is sort of fusty and 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 reactionary, possibly a little bit, a <laughs> little bit reactionary. Uh, but corduroy is 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 very very comfortable. Somebody who's wearing corduroy is 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 making a statement. Yeah, and you are making a statement. Now, would that be a, a sort of a Scottish viola shirt you're wearing? Uh, this this shirt. What sort of shirt did you say? Viola. Uh, Viola, uh, um, uh, no, no, no. Now, what about the, what about shoes? You you spend interesting amounts of time describing people's footwear, not having footwear, kinds of shoes in across your various books. It's that um, shoe leather interests yeah, you. Yeah, well, shoes, yes, shoes do interest me in in, in fictional context. In that, uh, and I also I, I I have a few pairs. Uh, myself, but but uh, I find shoes. People's relationship with their shoes is quite interesting. Because shoes are quite intimate objects, and they can be quite poignant. When you look at a pair of shoes on the on the floor, uh, sitting there, or, or whatever they do on on the floor, you you actually really feel there's a poignancy to them because they're they're very human objects. They're intimately associated with human beings, and they often express people's yearnings. Uh, a person who has a very grand pair of shoes or a very fancy pair of shoes, it, really it, it represents the desire for beauty, a, des a desire to bring something of, of color and, and, and beauty into, into, into life. So my characters do, do buy shoes in the course of the books. Um, in the Corduroy Mansions, um, one of the characters, William French, buys uh, a, a very nice new pair of Belgian shoes. Now, I don't know if you knew that the Belgians uh, make shoes. You don't necessarily associate the Belgians. Made with, made with felt or something? Well, no, no, they aren't. No, uh, the, the Belgians you really associate with chocolate. They make a lot of chocolate and, and regulations. They make a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, regulations. But um, they, uh, if you lived in the European Union, you would uh, certainly take that view. But Belgian shoes, I came across them by accident. I walked past this shop and it had this intriguing sign, Belgian shoes. And I went in and there were these... That's a sign that'll just grab you. It, 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 it will really draw them in. And, uh, and I went in and there were these beautiful shoes which are very lightweight and the, the sole is made of compressed horsehair. And then they've got very s soft leather soles. You can't wear them outside. Uh, the uh, the Belgians don't get out very much, and uh, <laughs> but, but they really are terrific shoes, and so I put them into corduroy um, mansions. I wrote about uh, one of the characters getting a pair of uh, uh, Belgian shoes, which were subsequently um, eaten by his dog, uh, <laughs> like chocolates. Indeed, indeed. The uh, the pacing of of your books sort of reflects uh, not only a, a perhaps an other world or a slightly different alternate reality, uh, perhaps free of some of the presses of 
day-to-day life, but also the the fact that uh, say for uh, you know Isabella Dalhousie writing this uh, journal of philosophy, she's the editor of, of the philosophy. There's a pressure to get it out, but it's only quarterly. Yet there is this rhythm uh, to her life. Yet there's plenty of time to go sit in a coffee shop to think, uh, to uh, to get involved in other people's lives a bit nosily. She wonders, you know. Uh, yes, well, I enjoy that. Uh, I think that we need more space in our lives. Um, if you if if most of us sit down and think about our lives, we uh, we're very busy. Uh, we have a job, we're, we've got family obligations, etc. And uh, I think that we're, we're really yearning in many cases for, for a, bit, a bit of space to sit and think and reflect on, on, on issues uh, of, uh, of importance. I think the modern world surrounds us with a whole lot of, bombards us with images, with messages, music, you know, that pipe music that you hear around all the time. There's, there's just a lot of noise, and we need, we need that space, and I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to do that in the books. When the characters sit down and have tea, there's a lot of tea scenes in my books. Maramatsui, Mahamakutsi. I spilled one of your books the other day. I mean, it was knocked it over. That's right. But when they sit down and have, have tea, it's, it's an opportunity to, to, to reflect. And it's, it's, I suppose it's an attempt to create in prose that area of quiet. Uh, that I think we, we, we yearn for, which, um, which we recognize sometimes when we hear, hear it in music. If you play Arvo Pert, the uh, Estonian composer, to, to, to people who perhaps haven't heard Pert before, and watch their expression, and they're absolutely stunned because this is so, so quiet and still, and he's getting to that still heart of things that, 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 that we want. Either with the human voice or, or with instruments. And, and, and okay, so. You've got a lot of space in your life. You've written several series of books. You're continuing to speak. Uh, what do you do in your free time? You start an orchestra. Yes, well, my wife and I started an orchestra about um, 14 years ago for, for people who, who can't really play. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, because uh, our daughters had been in school orchestras, and we saw what fun it was, and neither of us had been been in a school orchestra before, and we thought that if we could reach that standard, then then it would be, uh, would be great. So we started an orchestra, and we decided that we would call it something which really made uh, people, um, uh, made it clear to people uh, what we were like and what they w- would, would get, and also wouldn't put off people who would feel uh, embarrassed or awkward about uh, approaching an orchestra. So we called it the Really Terrible Orchestra. And, uh, and we, 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 we started to play. Uh, we advertised. Uh, we got an awful lot of people uh, who played the clarinet uh, because uh, <laughs> my, my view is, is, is most people actually do play the clarinet. I don't know if you found out that, uh, um, cetera, but, but really are an awful lot of clarinetists about. So we had about 15 uh, clarinetists and, uh, and about two strings. And, uh, <laughs> And we got a professional conductor with a sense of humor uh, to come and conduct. That, that, you make that sound rare in the way that you say <laughs> Well, you know, some conductors can be a little bit, they insist that you keep to the time. And, that, that thing, so. and uh, so uh, we, we started to play. And uh, we have gone from strength to strength or, or, or weakness to weakness, perhaps. But we really have done. And last year, we had the temerity to bring our really terrible orchestra to New York. We went on tour uh, to New York, and on April the 1st, uh, we played in New York Town Hall, and we virtually filled the town hall, and we had a standing ovation at the end, which is very difficult in New York to, to get that, because they don't really, I mean... Well, that was because you didn't have chairs out, right? I mean, <laughs> 
Yeah, so they were heading for the door. <laughs> yeah, and the New York audiences, it's, it's difficult enough to get them to clap. And, uh, well, but you set the bar high with, your, uh, with, the, with the name of your group. You're not saying the Edinburgh Philharmonic Society. You're saying the really terrible orchestra. I mean, it's, there's truth in advertising. And so when you exceed that... Well, that's right. I mean, maybe they thought that we would be worse. Uh, it's possible. Uh, but um, we did involve them because we always have, in our concerts, uh, we always have a sing-along sound of music. And I think that that always uh, wins people over. You know, I'm surprised that more of the big phil philharmonic orchestra... <laughs> Is there a particular number that uh, you favor? Well, they, they love Edelweiss. And... Uh, uh, and what, what you do is you give them a, a pause. The conductor turns around and says, there will now be a pause uh, for us to weep. And then you carry on. <laughs> so I think the, the big phil philharmonic orchestras should have a sing-along sound of music in their program, <laughs> which people would love. And it would also win over the critics. The critics, you know, how could you? How could you be rude about a concert if you've sung Edelweiss in it? <laughs> And if you've participated, you're one of the guilty. I mean, right? <laughs> that's right. That, that's so uh, I can see this added to the Royal Albert Hall uh, last night of the proms, for instance. You know, well, we we are, we are getting approaches from people. They haven't approached us yet, but we are getting <laughs> approaches from uh, from people, and we're very good. It's therapeutic, you know. It really is. It's very helpful for people who are very weak players to play with other other people. And uh, I mean, they and we're very. The standard is very low. We've we've even had one occasion, and uh, this is absolutely true. We had an occasion where one section of the orchestra had got things mixed up a bit and was playing a different different tune altogether. <laughs> that sounds very John Cageian in a way. <laughs> well, we could, uh, John Cage, we haven't played John Cage, but, but that is one piece of music, you know, his silence. Yes, we could yes, play that. Perfectly. Four minutes, 56 seconds. <laughs> we could play that perfectly. We could play that. Note by note. Right. <laughs> Have you ever done Arvo Pert? No, we, we, we're, we're waiting for uh, an arrangement of Avo Pert for, for a junior school orchestra. <laughs> so my, my grandmother was an accomplished violinist and pianist, and, and one of her favorite recordings, uh, I can still see her putting on it, was, was of a children, of a, was of a, like a school orchestra playing Beethoven, and she would put it on, and it would just sort of lift her spirits. She loved the... The joie, you know, the yes. joie, you know. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I think people find that very appealing when people are doing their best, when they see somebody doing their best and not doing something terribly well. It appeals at some very basic level <laughs> because I think most of us are really relieved to see that there's somebody who is worse than we are. Uh, and this applies also to people who can't play at all. They sit there in the audience and say, well, if I could play, I'd play better than that. <laughs> Alexander McCall Smith, we're talking about his really terrible orchestra and man who's written many books uh, in, in his different series over, over time, uh, and including the lovely uh, the children's story of Akimbo. Uh, one, of the, one of the features that you, uh, you, you do promote, for instance, although you don't talk about some of the political crises in Africa, is, is, the, is the animal kingdom of Africa and the, and the very real way that humans and, and the other species on the planet uh, interact and how dangerous it can be. Yes, yes, I am, I am interested in, in conservation 
And uh, Botswana, of course, where, where the African novels are, are set, um, is, has a very good record on, on conservation. They're, they're, they're doing their, their best. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult in some other countries in Africa where there's tremendous pressure. Poaching pressure in particular is, is, really, is really very, uh, is very sad. That, that that is happening, but uh, Botswana actually is 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 doing it uh, doing it really rather rather well. Could you ever see yourself writing a grim book? Well, uh, I don't know. One of those Henning Mankell books that's set in Scandinavia and Africa. Well, many people would like to be Swedish crime writers because Swedish crime writers are very popular. So there are an awful <laughs> lot of people who are calling themselves Sven Anderson, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think I might, I might try to be Sven Andersen, do something noir in a Swedish sort of, sort of way. Well, some people would like to be a Scottish crime writer or a Scottish detective writer of some kinds, as you are, Alexander McCall Smith. Thank you very much for being on West Coast Live. Thank you. That's today's West Coast Live. We're back here next week. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live. Right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.